The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. R. Scott Clark. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Father, we are so grateful this morning that Yahweh, our God, is good because you have drawn near to us and you have drawn us near to yourself and with your people in all times and in all places. Whenever that occurs, the appropriate response has been to say that Yahweh is good because when you draw near to us and draw us near to yourself, we know your mercy for you have not allowed us to experience all of the consequences of our sins. You have restrained them and their consequences. Your mercy is indeed forever sure, and your truth is fixed because you are fixed, and your truth is who you are to us and what you are to us. You are a God who says what he shall do and does what he says. And we bless you and praise you because you have said to us, forgiven, and you have not changed your mind. We accept these good gifts again as we gather before your face to meditate on your word with thanksgiving and with joy O Lord, hear our prayer. Be with us as we meditate on your word. Write it on our hearts. And may you, O Lord, cause it to find a deep place within us so that it may do its powerful work within us, that we may all together know all the benefits of the covenant of grace. Hear our prayer. Forgive our sins always. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. I want to meditate with you this morning on just a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read the first six verses, but only we're only going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, looking at verses 1 through 6, reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless this word and may he write it on our hearts. Paul, as you know, uh, is writing to the Corinthian congregation, and we have here um, a stream, a couple of letters in a stream of correspondence, so either first and third or second and fourth, depends on whom you ask, and for the purposes of understanding this this morning, it doesn't much matter, except to understand that there's a some, there are serious problems in this congregation in the mid-50s. Paul writes to them from Macedonia to address a series of issues. Um, and you know that he's already done this in, in uh, what we call 1 Corinthians. And now in 2, um, he is writing not so much to correct those issues as to defend the legitimacy of his ministry against the assaults, uh, by those whom he describes in chapters 11 and 12 with a, a remarkable expression in, in 11.5. He speaks of uh, super apostles. He says in 11.5, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these uh, super apostles, which is a, a fascinating thing to say. The Apostle Paul, after all, is one who had seen the ascended Christ with his own eyes and who had received his ministry directly from Jesus in this way. And then he refers to them again in 12.11. And again, and we'll see here, we have reason to think that these verses are directly relevant to 4, 1, and 2. I have been a fool, he says in 12:11 you forced me to it for i ought to have been commended by you for i was not at all inferior to these super apostles even though i am nothing and of course uh, in in the ancient world there's uh, really uh, besides uh, word order and a, a few other devices uh, there's no way to highlight these words at least in the way that we understand if we were doing it, we would probably put, these, uh, put those words super apostles in quotation marks. The apostle isn't actually saying that they are super apostles, that they, that they have an apostleship that is superior to his. He says, obviously, explicitly the opposite thing. So he writes to in part here, and I think it's relevant, uh, particularly in these verses, to defend his ministry against the criticisms being leveled against it by the so-called self-described is, a, I think, an important adjective, super apostles, because these are fellows who are coming to the Corinthians saying, well, you know, Paul, you know, he's really not very eloquent. He's really not very powerful. And in fact, he said he was coming to visit you, but he, he didn't make it. And so he doesn't really love you. Um, he's not really caring for you. He doesn't really have what you need. But for $29.95, slightly higher at West of the Rockies, no COD, send before midnight, you know, click now. <laughs> We'll be your super apostles. We'll have an apostleship that's transcendent, superior to. In fact, we have an apostleship that's transcendent to, superior to, that of the apostle Paul. These were doubtless rhetorically impressive people. These were doubtless rhetorically impressive people. There were, in the ancient world, sophists who made their living saying, well, what people want to hear. I, I can't imagine 
Uh, I, I'm sure you've never heard or seen anything like that in, in the late modern period, people saying what they think people want to hear, regardless of what the truth is or regardless of what they actually believe. But as far away as that might seem from our experience, as remote as it might seem, that was a, that was a thing in the ancient world. That was a thing in the, in the first century. And the Apostle Paul here is defending his ministry against the criticisms, both explicit and uh, implicit, if you will, the sort of subversion of his ministry among the Corinthian uh, Christians or within the Corinthian congregation against the super apostles. And he does so in light of the new covenant. We're, we've just finished, if you're if we were sort of reading through uh, 2 Corinthians, he's just laid out the reality of his ministry uh, or, uh, or his role, his office, as a minister of the new covenant. He's not a servant of Moses, and we should mark that very clearly, by the way. I, I fear that people, uh, we use the word Old Covenant sometimes, or Old Testament, uh, without always defining our terms very carefully, and, and, and that's understandable, but it, it can be misleading but if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, it's very clearly evident that the contrast that he draws here uh, between the Old and New Covenants is a contrast between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Moses. The ministry of Christ and the ministry of Moses. And Paul says he is not a minister of the Old Covenant, which has a fading glory um, over which there was a veil from which he draws some interesting conclusions and, and that he picks up just beyond the verses that we're considering this morning. But he conducts his ministry in light of the new covenant. And there are three uh, qualities that he expresses or that he, uh, by which he characterizes his own ministry. This is an awkward thing for a pastor to do, to have to defend himself to a congregation. You go as a minister to serve. You go as a minister to... Uh, preach the law, preach the gospel, to shepherd people, to meet with them, to pray with them, to help them think through difficult issues, to visit them in the hospital, catechize the children of the congregation. And of course, you're going to have some criticism, but most of the time, you just l let that go. If you spend your ministry responding to critics, you'll end up doing nothing else but defending yourself. So. Uh, you, you either develop a thick skin and trust in the Lord, people may say what they will, and you just keep doing uh, what you're called to do. You're, when they lay hands on you for gospel ministry, you do what you were called to do. And Defending yourself isn't really very high on that list of priorities, so you develop a thick skin. After a while, you learn that sticks and stones may break my bones but names will never hurt me. Well, they hurt a little bit. Some of them hurt for a long time, but you suck it up, as we say. You take it like a man, and you go on. And then after a while, it fades, and you get to my age, and you, don't, you know that it happened, but you don't know when it happened, or where, or why, or who, or who said it. And so just give it time, and it goes away. I've had people approach me and say, well, I want to apologize for something that I said, and, I, and I've said to them, in all honesty, I'm, 
you know, brother, I forgive you. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no recollection of that whatsoever. But I, I'm happy to receive you, and I'm not offended in the least. So you, you, I think you, you learn to do that in pastoral ministry. So it's unusual for a minister to have to defend himself this way. And yet the Apostle Paul felt compelled, not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of the ministry with which he had been entrusted. That's a very important distinction. He's defending his office, not even really his person. He's defending his office and, the con and his conduct of his office or his fulfillment of his office for the sake of the ministry. It's all about the ministry. That, and by ministry, I only mean this. I mean the outward administration of the law and the gospel and the gospel sacraments and discipline when it was necessary. Because the Apostle Paul knew something that you and I are still learning, and that is the ministry is not about you, it's not about me, it's about Christ. You need to say that every day, by the way, to yourself. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. The problem that people often have with pastors isn't really with the pastor. Sometimes it is. We're going to come to this in a second. Sometimes it is, and sometimes those problems are legitimate. And I don't mean to dismiss legitimate concerns in any way. In fact, I, I want to affirm the reality of those concerns. But when we, like the Apostle Paul, have conducted our ministries legitimately, our legitimate ministries in legitimate ways, in godly ways, in public ways, as Paul says, in merciful ways, uh, with integrity, then the problem that people have ultimately is not with the minister or even with the ministry. It's with him in whose name we minister. And you have to recognize that. That's another way in which it's not about you and it's not about me. Sometimes it really is about Christ and the problems that people have with Christ. And, and, and we're only ministers. We're only servants. There are, there are severe limits to what we can do. We only minister, we only preach, we only teach, we only administer the sacraments. We only administer discipline when it's necessary, when it's authorized by our sessions and our consistories or other ecclesiastical entities. Paul, Paul characterizes his ministry, first of all, in, uh, as a ministry of mercy. Having, uh, therefore, this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a striking thing for the Apostle Paul to say, by the mercy of God. But it's a completely appropriate thing for him to say. This is a fellow who, after all, was known not only for opposing Christianity, but for persecuting Christians and even for consenting to their martyrdom and murder. You remember in Acts when he was presented to the churches, as it were, and people said, uh, Lord, you do know who Saul of Tarsus is, don't you? Don't you think Paul thought about that every day? That the people to whom he was ministering and the people with whom he prayed and the people who 
were coming to faith by the grace of God through his ministry were the very people whom he had previously sought to murder. And that in so doing, that he was really seeking to murder Jesus. He, he knew what he was. And it's so interesting that he picked mercy by the mercy of God. Mercy means the restraint or, the, or, or not receiving the consequences of your sins or your actions. Paul did not receive the consequences of his sins. He received the opposite. A murderer received a ministry. How extraordinary is that? How really richly and deeply ironic is that? What a reversal that is. A minister is someone who is possessed by a profound sense of, of, of the mercy of God. He really now is serving God. He thought he was serving God before. And now he really is. And he, know, and he, he now knows what this is. And that's why he says that he's not discouraged we do not lose heart. How can he lose heart when he has received by the mercy of God the privilege of serving the ascended Jesus by announcing his law and announcing his gospel and as appropriate, the apostle says some interesting things about administering the sacraments, but administering this message broadly administering this message of the one whom he had by virtue of killing Christians whom he had sought to persecute. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the truth is because Saul hated Jesus. He hated him with all of his heart. But Jesus loved Saul of Tarsus with all of his heart and laid down his life for him and sent his Holy Spirit into him and upon him and made him a new person, and more than that, endowed him with a ministry by his direct call. Paul had a merciful ministry. He also had a public ministry. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. This is a direct reflection on the abuse of the ministry by the so-called self-described super-apostles. We renounce the secret things. The, the, the temptation to Gnosticism is powerful. If you want to be successful, if you want to be wealthy, if you want to be popular, if you want to be famous, peddle secrets. People love it. Americans love it. We love secrets. Psst, I have a secret. You can go on the internet and you can ordain yourself and, and start declaring secrets that you know that no one else knows, and you can sell that for more than $29.95. And, and you can gather a body. If you want to be successful, if you want to have buildings, bodies, and budgets, secrets, that's the first thing to do. That's the power of Mormonism. That's the power of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the power of, of all of the sects and cults, is they have a secret that nobody else knows. It's the, it's the power, the, the, the seduction of Gnosticism. Paul says, I, I'm not engaging in secrets. I don't have, I'm, I'm not cutting any backroom deals. There's no smoke-filled rooms in my ministry. I'm not involved in secrets. I'm not involved in shameful things, he says. And the, the word here that interests me the most is this word panergia. I, I'm not walking in craftiness, he says. Is the older translation, and, and 
uh, in chapter 11, verse 3, and in 12, 16, he uses the same word. He uses the same word in immediate connection with the super apostles. And that's why I know that he's thinking about the super apostles here. Because the super apostles are engaged in secret things. They are engaged in shameful things. Their ministry is characterized by craftiness, sneakiness, by panurgia. Your ministry may not be, must not be, characterized by these things. Your ministry must be characterized by the opposite, by openness. People talk about transparency, and then they make you require, uh, f- file a FOIA request uh, to request for information, and then they black out everything that they don't want you to see. But, uh, but we're being transparent. Not distorting the word of God, he says. You want to be powerful? You want to be successful? Distort the word. People love that. I guarantee you. They like it. Make every passage about your congregation's felt needs. They will eat that up. Or yell at them and tell them how terrible it is. They like that too. Sometimes. Oftentimes, more than you think. There's a kind of delight in reveling in how terrible we are and how we've got to do better because it puts us all on our works footing, and we like that. That's powerful because it puts me in charge. The last thing, and we have to do this very quickly, is that Paul says in the second part of verse 2, in effect, paraphrasing, he has an Uh, an integral ministry, that is, his ministry holds together. There aren't two Pauls. There's not a secret Paul and a public Paul. Paul isn't schizophrenic in his ministry. He doesn't say one thing in public and another thing in private. What you see is what you get. This is why they didn't think Paul was very sophisticated or very clever, because Paul was what he was. We used to say, what you see is what you get. WYSIWYG in computer terms. Paul is WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. This is Paul. He's just a minister. He's just announcing the law. He's just announcing the gospel. He's just loving his people. He's just giving himself to the people, doing, right, conducting his ministry all the time, publicly, privately. There aren't, it's not a business. He's not a CEO. He's not marketing himself. He's not branding himself. He's not building his brand in public and doing something else in private, cutting deals, figuring out how to accumulate power and influence. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with ministers who are talking about what strategies they need to employ to get more influence and power over their congregation so they can build their brand. This is a thing now. People are paying $300 an hour to pastoral consultants. They're called, uh, I can't remember what they're called now, but they're basically pastoral consultants. And most of this is about how you can get rid of that troublesome elder or deal with a a 75-year-old lady who's giving you difficulty, who sits in the third row on the left every Sunday. And why do you want to do that? that So that you can execute your vision which is just your agenda. 
You know what Paul's agenda was? To preach Christ and Him crucified. And everything else belongs to the Lord. If they fire you, they fire you. If they lead you away and put you in handcuffs, they lead you away and put you in handcuffs. If eventually, after letting you out of jail, they arrest you again and take you out on the Appian Way and put you on your knees and draw a sword and cut off your head, that is why they call it ministry. That's integrity. Not power, not buildings, not buddies, not bodies, and not budgets. It's service of the ascended Lord who laid himself down for us. Who said, I could call legions of angels, but that's not the nature of my kingdom. Father, we're so grateful for the ministry that you have given us. It is uh, beyond us. We're not competent for it. We're not capable of it. And so we give you great thanks that our Lord Jesus is so kind and gracious to us to include us in this ministry and to make use of foolish, broken pots of clay to accomplish his purposes. Oh Lord, forgive us for our weakness, our sin, our frailty, our foolishness, our blindness, our empire building, all of it, O Lord, our branding. And use us, O Lord, to accomplish your glorious purposes, even if it means being taken out inside the city of Rome and losing our life for the sake of the gospel. May it be already true of us that we shall have already lost our life for the sake of the gospel long before they take us outside the city. Hear our prayer, forgive our sins, and make us useful for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.